What's going on, everybody? Welcome to People Playing Games. This is a show all about the people who make the world of video games awesome, and I am super excited about today's guest. Uh, he is a true veteran of the industry, uh, someone who has worked behind the scenes with some of your favorite games and is now at Twitch. My good friend, Chase, how are you doing, man? And you are... Oh, oh I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show. <laughs> Yeah, really appreciate you you stopping by. Uh, how are things going at Twitch these days? Uh, you know, when I first started working on Twitch, you know, we were starved for anything to talk about because at that point, uh, when we launched the brand, it was really just a site full of esports but with no monetization. Um, and so it was just competitive gaming. People didn't care about esports at that time because competitive gaming already existed. So saying, hey, they're doing it live online – uh, media just weren't interested in that. So other than telling the story that, hey, people are actually watching other people play video games, there was no other stories to tell. So every month it was like uh, trying to just scrape the bottom of the barrel to find something to tell media about. You know, now, jump six years later, every single day there's something for us to talk about with press. Um, in fact, that's the challenge I have now is trying to determine what news I'm going to pitch out because uh, – certain announcements can cannibalize other ones very easily. Yeah. I mean, I mean, lately, you know, I, I hear from you almost every day these days with a, <laughs> which is great, you know, whether it's esports partnerships or new kind of channel uh, channels and shows you guys are launching and features. So that's super exciting. So I guess for the people who don't know, and to make sure I have this right, are you the, the head of PR for Twitch? Yeah. And so uh, I started out, uh, with Twitch, um, I was on their, I was at their public relations agency for about the first year. Uh, then they brought me in house and I actually handled all of their PR as a one man team up until about six months ago where I finally brought on my first in house PR person. But, um, and I also have a few PR agencies I work with, but all of them are in other countries. So in the US, it's been pretty much a one man show for the first, you know, four or five years. So it's a lot of work, but, uh, fun work. It certainly sounds like it. And uh, so before we take things back and kind of go into your career a bit, uh, our first segment is called First Favorite Worst. Uh, we're going to get a little taste of your gaming history as a gamer. Uh, so my first question is the first game you've played ever. Uh, that would probably be, well, I was going to say we did have a probably a, a Atari or a Coleco game. Uh, Adventure is the one I remember the most. But actually, you know what? I remember those, um, the games like um, Haunted Mansion, which were like infograms. I think they're uh, word, they're text-based adventure games. Um, the I played those, and I also remember uh, Aztec. I, I played on my Apple IIe. So uh, those are some of the old things. Um, yeah, I'd have to say probably Adventure or Aztec. I don't remember which came first, Apple IIe or the Atari. Sounds good. And, and what would you say your favorite is? Uh, you know, that's that's a loaded question for any <laughs> gamer. Um, my all-time favorite game. Uh, I hate this question. Um, I would have to say. Hmm. I really like Fallout 4, and I know it's it's a recent game. But I realized I spent like a whole year playing it. And, you know, just the fact that every new, you know, after I beat the game, I went back and was like looking up maps to find out little things I missed before. Like I wanted to just get 
get every drop of fun out of the game imaginable. Um, and so I'd have to say that's really, that's probably my favorite game, but you know what? It's, I like the fallout series just as much as I like the borderland series. Um, I love the last of us, um, Jack Ryan radio. When I go back to my dreamcast days, um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, and I, I don't think any gamer can ever say what's their favorite game unless they just play one game all the time. It's a really yep. hard. It's a hard question to answer. Let's put you on the spot. Sure. Uh, for this question, I usually say Mass Effect Two, uh, which was yeah, Mass Effect is kind of my my favorite series as far as like your your typical AAA games go. Uh, and two, I just love the world and the characters so much. Uh, so that's that's usually my go to answer. But I'm also like a hardcore fighting game guy, so I I flip flop between things like. Street Fighter Alpha 3 and Marvel vs. Capcom 2, all, all types of fighting games across, you know, all different eras. So, but Mass Effect 2 is the short answer. You know, the uh, the other game I really love, and it's sort of, if you want to say, you know, what deep cuts are your, what's your favorite deep cut? Yeah. Which wasn't a title. Um, I have to go with The Unfinished Swan. Hmm. Um, by Brian Sparrow, they just put out, you know, the What Remains of Edith Finch. Um I think that's the name of it. But, uh, yeah, Unfinished Swan, it was a very short game, very easy game. Um, it was, a, you know, just a PSN game at first, and then they re-released it for the PS4, but still through PSN. And the thing about it is it was so short, but it was so innovative, you know, because it starts off with just a white screen, and then you're throwing paintballs at it to really unfold, cover the, the environment. And I remember the first time I saw the game, it's I just wanted to see what happens next. I was so – I said, I don't pay for many games just because I'm – I know a lot of people in the industry, but when I saw that game, I said, that's a game I will actually buy. And um, it was just really cool exploring it. And um, the story's really touching. They've got the voice of Terry Gilliam in it. And it's got a really uh, absurd sense of humor throughout. Um, so anyways, that's that's sort of like my, my deep cut game that I like to go to. And my kids love it too. That is a game I've heard a lot of good things about. I got to check it out. So now onto your, what do you think is the worst game you've played? Uh, that's actually easier than I thought it would be, but I don't remember the actual number. There was a Tomb Raider game I played. Could have been 9 or 10. All I remember was that the very... I love Tomb Raider. The last two... I love the first two games, and I love the last two games. Um, in fact, the last two have, are, you know, are some of my all-time favorite games. Um, but there was one right before they rebooted it, and I just... It was at the very start of the game, and I had a very simple jump to make. Like, I'm staring at the ledge. I know that's the ledge I need to jump to. You just push forward and hit a button, and I could not do it. It took me like, it felt like hours. You know, I kept jumping and missing it, and I got, I said, how could somebody create a game that has this kind of issue in it that's just at the start of the game? It's like anybody who picks up the controller for the first time, this is their gateway into this game. And I understand that, you know, there's a lot of bugs in games that don't get fixed, but you think they that one that's right at the start of the game would be something they'd say, well, we definitely got to fix this one. And uh, so that was that sort of went down the back of my mind as one of the as the one of the worst gameplay experiences I've had. Um, but yeah, um, yeah, I'm glad they turned things around with with Tomb Raider and Rise of the Tomb Raider because those middle games were definitely rough. So yeah, we're gonna we're gonna dive into your career a little bit. So when I first hit you up about this interview, you sent me uh, basically your PR resume, uh, which was a long list, impressively long list. Uh, but before that, uh, you were writing about games. So I kind of yeah. I kind of want to know a little bit about that. So in our in the in the nineties, um, 
I was a working at a, I, I ran a record label um, and I was a club DJ and a radio DJ. And while I was working there in the music industry um, and as a DJ, uh, Chase is obviously, I just go by one name, but not to be pretentious, I was a DJ, so I was DJ Chase, and then the DJ fell away over time, and everybody started calling me Chase, so I just went with it. But um, while I was running the record label, I wanted to get free games. And so I started, uh, I had a friend who I used, I was also wanting free music, so I got into doing music reviews, and at one of these publications, uh, my friend, who's also um, still a games, games journalist, he gave me, let me review uh, Myth. Uh, I think it was a bungee game. Uh, I forget, mm -hmm. like a and d Myth, I think it was called. Yep. So I reviewed that PC game, so that got me into the, able to say, hey, I'm a games reviewer for a notable publication. Um, and so from there I said, okay, I, I, I got the bug. I said, I want to get more games, but I don't have any consoles because that was a PC game. But I wanted to get into consoles. So I reached out to this artsy magazine up in the Bay Area, and I said, how do you like a beginner's guide to gaming? Everything you need to know for somebody just getting into it. Because at that point, around 92, early 90s, gaming was just coming into vogue outside of geek culture. And they said, sure, you know, send us an, do us an article. So I reached out to Sony, and I said, listen, I have a Saturn, and I have a N64, but I don't have the PlayStation and I'm doing this roundup of all the consoles. So they sent me one. Then I contacted Sega and I said, listen, I got the PlayStation N64, but I don't have a Saturn. So they sent me one. Then I went to Nintendo and I told the same story because at that time, no console company wanted to be left out of a best console roundup. So that's how I got my first three consoles. And then I started doing game coverage from there. And I started – the funny thing about these Beginner's Guide to Gaming, while they were presented as articles for these publications, I was actually educating myself. And so I remember I was on a bunch of news groups and forums where I would talk to the gaming community who were on these and say, ask them that question. I'd go, hey, everybody, I'm writing an article for this magazine on the every game, the best games you need to know about for these consoles. And people would reach out, you know, send me suggestions. And then I started reading out to like game editors at publications and I said, you know, getting their insights. And um, and then once I heard what the great games were, I'd reach out to those game companies and start doing features. Um, so that's I got started. I ended up. Throughout the 90s, I ended up writing for over 40 different publications. Um, a couple of them, I saw that gaming was expanding beyond just the, the, the game culture, like into more broader mainstream audiences were using games. So I was actually, I like to think, I don't know for sure, one of the first people to actually start writing game coverage for women's magazines. There was a couple of women's magazines, YM and Jump, which were similar to like 17, basically geared towards like that 15 to 17-year-old female demographic. Um, I started doing roundups for those publications. and um, But the one that really put me over in the game industry, I wrote for Gear Magazine, which only lasted about a year, was Bob Guccione Jr.'s Answer to Maxim. So it was like a lad mag. And uh, they had like a half a million circulation. So I was getting flown all over the country by game companies. And so after about uh, nine years, when my record label was eventually folding, I had a choice to stay in the music industry or um, move out of it. And I saw this was during the Napster age where I saw a lot of labels were really suffering because people were stealing music instead of buying it. And uh, when you work at independent labels, you know, you don't have a whole lot of music uh, income to, to begin with. So I uh, realized that because I was doing PR for my label, I had PR, I knew how to 
to draft press releases and do pitching, but I was also being pitched all the time by all, all these games. So I knew their approach and I was hanging out with game, all these other game reviewers. So I knew uh, by going to these events, junkets I was flown to. So I felt, you know, I said, I know a lot about this. And I also knew all these alternative publications that uh, like they might be like music publications, all these glossy magazines I was writing for that might have like 40 to 60,000 circulation, but not really on the mainstream radar. And so I, I bundled all that, that up and I ended up getting a job at a PR agency, uh, Access Communications, where I was at for 14 years. Um, but my first thing, I was brought on board to help launch the Sega Dreamcast and help introduce it to um, a lot of the alternative lifestyle media that might not be on your traditional media list. And But when I got on board, one of the first things I started doing was revamping the PR list and just revetting everybody just because I know how media can get onto lists and uh, stay on there even when they're not writing. So I went and uh, owned, managed their PR list for 14 years. So uh, even though we shared it among numerous accounts, you know, I made sure there was a very stiff vetting process. But I realize I'm getting in the weeds and who could care less about my PR work. Let me talk about the game stuff. So <laughs> I'm, um, I'm fascinated by it, by the way. Yeah, so, so it was basically this all kind of came out of a desire to get free games. Yeah. That's, and that's, that's why everybody gets into game reviewing. Um, the uh, which is you know it's a tough job because they people get into it because they love of games, but they realize it's tough to you know have a house and raise a family, you know. And so unfortunately, on the editorial side, I would imagine most places don't pay that great. So you're there's a conflict between the love being doing something you're passionate about and being able to make a living, which is why so many media end up on the other side of the fence doing things like PR and marketing and working with studios and different types of things. Um, but yeah, so it was my love of gaming that got me into it. Um, but then it was the games I got to work on. So uh, the game actually that got me to want to work on the launch of the Dreamcast was I was at E3 uh, that year. And I've been going to E3 every year since 1999. Um, I think I've, mi I've missed one, which was one of the bad years in Santa Monica. <laughs> Um, the game that got me into it was I saw Resident Evil Code Veronica and I said, man, that game looks so good I, on that system. I said, I want to be promoting those kind of games like this. So I, I had like, that was the game that put me over. And, uh, but then, so I got to launch the Dreamcast and work on every single Dreamcast title, first party title from the launch of the console to the death of the console and beyond. So I was on the Sega account for about seven years. Um, so I got to work on Crazy Taxi, Shenmue, Space Channel 5, Seaman, Jack Ryan Radio, Sonic Adventure. I got to work on every title. And back then it was exciting because we got to do – we did a lot of big events for everything, whether it was at E3 where we had like Space Channel 5. We had dancers. We had inline skaters and graffiti artists for Jack Ryan Radio. Um, for Crazy Taxi, we did a Crazy Taxi. We, we, we did a whole competition – not at E3, but – um, up in the Bay Area, we did a whole Crazy Taxi national competition, um, which was really cool because it came down to this woman and this guy who were the two finalists. And the guy was kind of like the bad boy of the competition because apparently he knew how to work some glitches in the game to be more successful. And so it was sort of like Arch Enemy versus this uh, this, this really soft-spoken girl from middle Midwest, I believe. And uh, – and the thing is, she ended up winning the competition, which was really it was it was like total movie script, you know, yeah. without seeing, you know coming out, you know, and uh, and uh, yeah, so that was a really cool story. Um, 
you know, I, we should track her down. We should track her down. See whatever happened to the girl who won Crazy Taxi tournament. Uh, in the <laughs> I'd like um, to know. So, uh, you know, I still your name's still out there. I could still track it down. Uh, yeah. So, but it was really cool. We were doing a lot of big events, doing a lot of creative promotional items, and uh, it was really the heyday of big spending for game companies. Um, and uh, yeah, so I so after that, after working on all the Dreamcast titles, um, I ended up working with two because Sega also became Sega Sports, which became 2K Sports. So I started working with 2K. So um, I got to launch Bioshock, which was great, um, and Bioshock 2. Um, worked on a lot of other two. I worked on all the 2K sports titles for many years. Um, so I got to go to all of the motion capture shoots with all the cover athletes, you know, Derek Jeter, Shaquille O'Neal, um, people like that. Um, and then I worked with Disney Interactive, where I got to launch Disney Epic Mickey, which is one of those games that got maligned for its camera angles. But it's actually a really great game. Um, my daughter played through it like three times. Um, and sometimes reviewers don't always think in terms of the experience kids get from these games. You know, a lot of these games that might seem like one-time plays, often I'll see my kids play them over and over again. Right. Um, Epic Mickey, the attention to detail in that game and the history that they ripped the, the plot line from is so fascinating. And I had a, the, the, the benefit of hanging out with Warren Spector when he did all of his interviews with press where he would talk about, you know, how he made the game. And there would be examples where you'd say an art director would come up to him and show him a trash can that looks perfect Disney. And he'd go, hey, how does this look? And the, Warren would say, which movie did you take that from? And the guy would go, oh, no, I just came up with it. He goes, nope, I need, you know, it has to be from an actual still. And so there was such this commitment to authenticity with that game. Um so I still love it. You know, I admit, yeah, the cameras could use help, could use a little work, but that to me wasn't enough to call the game a dud like it would seem to a lot of media really uh, came down on it. But also, you know, what happens with any game, that was one of those titles that had so much hype coming into it that if it wasn't, you know, 100% perfect, the bash, backlash was inevitable, and that, that hasn't really changed with games <laughs> over the years. Definitely not. And. The, then after that, I worked on, I mean, I worked on a lot of games after that, but I also, one of my favorite, I was brought back to work on Sega where I worked at all the consumer PR for Bayonetta. And that was a really fun campaign because the idea uh, is that we wanted to make, on the PR side, I had this idea that we really need to make it accessible to American audiences. Because when you look at Bayonetta, it's a very Japanese game um, the, from the music to the style of gameplay, everything about it. So I said, okay, well, in order to break through, I, I dissect, I said, okay, we need to, we need to deal with fashion, music, um, art, uh, lifestyle. I said, if we can Americanize it to the press in all these four categories, we can really change the perception of it. So the first thing I did, uh, and I did this on the PR side, not with marketing money, just for free. I, I coordinated a, a campaign with wizard the at the time wizard magazine was now they just primarily do their events like wizard cons mm. their conventions, wizard world but back then they were sort of the premier website for editorial regarding things happening in the comic book culture so i coordinated a bayonetta contest um and draw bayonetta and then we had like the, the developers from platinum vote on the winners and stuff so and we got the winner got like a playstation and uh big screen TV entertainment system. It was a pretty cool contest. 
Uh, fun fact is one of the guys who was the top 10 final um, ended up winning an art contest on Twitch, and we end up hiring him now. So I'm working with one of the guys who does a lot of the our artwork uh, graphics here who was one of the winners, so I, you know, it was just small world. Wow. Um, so then that was, that's how I got into the art side of the game. So I said, okay, lifestyle. I coordinated the same. And I, basically my pitch to Wizard was, hey, this is going to bring a lot of gaming attention to your site. So that was sort of like, that's how I got around sort of like trying to do a pay to play. And so the same thing, I worked out the same thing with Maxim, where I did a, a Bayonetta lookalike contest. Makes and, sense. You know, you know, it was... Uh, it wasn't that great because um, they didn't put they didn't, because it wasn't they didn't we weren't paying for it. Um, basically, I think they were doing it like in hopes that we would, you know, do more with them. But um, so they didn't put a whole lot of promotion behind it. But, uh, you know, we, we, we did get some good submissions, but uh, it was a, a very glossy affair. Um, and then so that's how we got lifestyle art. And then so for music. Um, I had this idea. I said, well, let's do a, I was, let's have somebody do a rap song about women characters in games, the evolution and sort of punk, you know, lead it from the beginning to, uh, I mean, the, the overall goal was to make Bayonetta the next Lara Croft. That was sort of the PR goal. Yeah. And so, well, let's do a song sort of like the evolution of, of women game characters and, um, sort of, and then have it be punctuated with, you know, the rival of Bayonetta. And so I tapped, uh, a couple different people in the music industry. I there was a guy named MC Lars who I he does he does laptop rap. He was an indie guy, and so I knew he would he 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 does the kind of pop culture type songs where I thought he would be a good one to do it. And then because I used to run in that kind of label I ran in the '90s was an industrial music label, sort of in the the along the lines of Nine Inch Nails type stuff. So I had one of the bands I worked back then sort of create the music for it. And I sort of told him which songs to sample to sort of it was all basically all most of the beats and stuff were all sampled from other songs and then, you know, processed. To, so they, it wasn't like a dead knockoff. Um, and then I thought, well, it's not just about writing a song. It's about also being innovative in terms of genre style. So while I have these these guys rapping, because basically MC Lars brought in two other rappers to rap with them or three other. I said, OK, for the chorus, I got this woman who sang for an ethereal gothic band. So that way we can make it sort of like industrial, gothic, all, all indie hip hop. So I wanted to make it sort of a a, a unique style, a hybrid. Um, and we, which I, the song's called Reaping Beauty. Um, and the uh, he ended up writing it all about Bayonetta. So they didn't really take the suggestion I said about the evolution, but they do. There's a section where they name check all these other uh, game characters. And what I did was I used trailers from the game that were public but then i also used a bunch of the art from the bayonetta contest and i had one of those artists also create other additional images of all these other female characters and so it, it definitely has this look of stolen trailers and and found art um <laughs> so then i got that covered in all of the hip-hop publications because i was really tight with that community so all the vibes and sources and complexes all covered it um and so then the last area was fashion. And I said, well, if you look at any ma urban magazine, you know, more pages are spent on shoes than on gaming. So we should do a Bayonetta shoe. So I had our art department come up with a cool design. I had a company that would knock out, do 500 for only like 1500 bucks. And I had everything in place. But when we went to Platinum Games, they said, well, we don't want anybody else designing our shoes for us. 
and we don't have time to design it for you. So that got killed. Hmm. But uh, but at the end of that campaign, you know, USA Today said Bayonetta, the next Lara Croft. So I felt like I had achieved what the initial goal was. Um, but uh, yeah, so that was a fun campaign. That's and, incredible. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Bayonetta is one of my favorite games of all time. And um, yeah, I do remember it being a big thing at the time. I at least you know. I don't quite remember all the campaigns you mentioned, but I remember the TV commercials and and just the the theme music of those commercials. And it was Bayonetta was very much in our faces when it first came out, which was really cool. Well, it was the top selling like PlayStation or there was some sort of niche of its the month it came out. Um, yeah. The um and then after that, I would say I think Disney Epic Mickey came after that. Um, but then the most recent, so like my last three years um at the agency four years. Uh, well, first I was working on PlayStation. Um, and so I launched like PlayStation move and PlayStation Vita. And it's actually the PlayStation Vita is responsible for a lot of the initial coverage of Twitch because my two clients were PlayStation and Twitch. And I was the gatekeeper for all the PlayStation Vitas. So whenever a reporter said, Hey, can I get a Vita from you? I'd say, yeah, sure. I can hook you up. Oh, by the way, any chance you could talk to my other client? Because at that time, Twitch was so hard to explain to people who who were unfamiliar with with it, which was pretty much everybody. So I didn't, I wasn't the best at telling the Twitch story, but the people at Twitch were. So I sort of leveraged my, those, my, the connections during the Vita time to get people to just take a call, take interviews with Twitch. And I mean, once they actually spoke with them, they, people saw that, Oh, this is really interesting what we're doing, even though it was still pretty early. Um, And then the last game I was working on was the last of us which it killed me to have to quit before that game launched to go in-house at Twitch. Wow, but, what, what, what a game to go out on. Yeah, and that, that is one of my all-time favorite games. It's such a great game. Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's sort of the uh, my gaming history. Um, and uh, Do you yeah, have a... Do you have a favorite uh, publisher or a specific game that you got to work on during that time? Well, I mean... I mean, I loved all the Sega Dreamcast games. I think Sega Dreamcast, it's one of those consoles where everybody who has it loves it. So I've never met a Dreamcast owner who didn't love their Dreamcast. I mean, that's the other thing. The Dreamcast, the the death of the Dreamcast, I attribute largely to Sony, which is the, we had to sell 5 million units for it to be uh, sustainable as a console. And we ended up getting to about 4 million. And I always equate the situation twofold. One, it had a modem, and that was sort of like a big selling point. And so, but Sony said, "Oh, we're going to be releasing a modem." But it actually took them about three years to get it out. But through this attrition of consumers waiting for the modem, it ended up we weren't able to sell all of our the consoles we needed to. The other part is, um, and this is my I always use a um, a comparison to um, Braveheart. Remember that scene in Braveheart where there. Uh, the Scots are just about beaten off. Um, they're, they've just about beaten the British, but they need the backup, the other clans to come to their aid. Yep. The other clans are on the sideline on their horses getting ready to rush in and help. And then right at the last minute, you realize they were bought off and they all turn around and leave them. And then Mill Gibson and the Irish all get defeated. Basically, the, the, the clan on the side, that was EA. So <laughs> EA was always on the sideline saying, because we're waiting for them to become published for the Dreamcast, because that was the biggest brand at the time at third party. If we could get them on board, it would really show, you know, third party validation. 
and they were just always there waiting, waiting, and then they ended up not coming through. And so I also attributed that to uh, sort of the, the death of the console. Definitely remember kind of reading about parts of that EA saga and how they just they, they just kind of abandoned ship. But uh, I remember we would actually take the Dreamcast on tour with a PlayStation and we'd show, I think it was uh, Dead or Alive, um, the fighting game, and we'd actually show it side by side with it on the PlayStation at the time. And people would say it actually looked better on the Dreamcast. I mean, there's some games that obviously didn't look better, but we were able to show that a lot of times people were trying to say it all like, oh, the new PlayStation at the time, you know, every, oh, you know, obviously it's going to look better because it's newer, but we're like, no, it's not actually true. There's some games that actually still look better on ours, but obviously I'm very sensitive to it. <laughs> I have a very soft spot for Dreamcast as well. So, yeah. so yeah, so kind of, so flash forward to more recent times after you finish working on The Last of Us, and then you go in-house at Twitch. Yeah, so, yeah, and Twitch, as I mentioned at the beginning of this interview, was, you know, the first year, there was nothing to talk about. But slowly, we started doing little things. Like, first, we announced uh, the partnership program. That came about a couple months after launch. And that was a huge milestone, because before the partnership program, there was no way for our streamers to monetize their channels in any way. And so that's what enabled them to offer subscriptions and do all these other things. And that was a big changing point for our community. After that, you know, other little milestones, we actually did a, um, a scholarship, which we thought, you know, like a $50,000 scholarship. Uh, we partnered with uh, Alienware and I think it was, um, uh, the Steel Series to do a scholarship with, for five people. Each one got like 10,000. Um, and uh, actually, we just uh, heard back from one of the scholarship winners who actually really had a significant impact on her career because um, she was actually working at the um, the VA hospital in D.C. where she would be doing stuff with video games to help them deal with PTSD. Um, it was helping. Yeah, I, I forget all the specifics of it, but she had a really unique application, you know, for the scholarship. And she reached out to us about a year ago saying, hey, just want to let you guys know that that was really beneficial to my career. And uh, so that was cool. Um, and I actually ran into her again um, in person. I met her for the first time last December when we were the first brand company to ever live stream a gaming event from the white house. And um, I guess, cause they invited a bunch of students to come too, and she was one of them. So I got to actually connect with her while I was inside the white house. Um, so yeah, so you gradually, um, I think that the, 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 after the partnership program, the next big major milestone was being integrated into the PlayStation 4 and the Xbox One, because prior to that, everything was on PC, which required a bit of a learning curve. You understand capture cams and capture cards and cameras. And so, but when we were integrating the consoles, just by saying Xbox broadcaster, hitting the share button on your PS4 controller, people could be up and broadcasting in just minutes. Um, as a result, 30% of our broadcasting base is actually coming from a console. So that was huge. And then the next biggest milestone, the obvious one, is being acquired by Amazon. Before we were acquired, um, everybody was aware of, in the gaming industry was aware of Twitch by then, but all the non-endemic brands really, you know, started becoming aware of what we were doing. And that now, if you look at people advertising on our platform, it's from every type of non-endemic space, from automotive to to beauty products to to soft drinks and food. It's it's really everybody who's out there. Um, is finding ways to work with our brand now, which is a huge 
shift than it was when we started. What's kind of uh, an, an average day at Twitch for you? Um, <laughs> drought, uh, let's see. The average thing is uh, hearing about a news announcement that needs to go out in two days, uh, <laughs> working with my PR manager to uh, get a release drafted. Um, and I always respect the fact that media need time to – determine whether it's something they want to write about and how they want to approach it. So, you know, I work hard to try and get for media that matter the most, you know, get a copy under embargo. So I've got to, it's not just getting the release done by the release date, but trying to get it done before then having to go through, you know, we don't have a lot of approvals, but um, it's not like some companies where, where it could take days and a lot of people back and forth, you know, thank gosh for, you know, some of these shared, uh, editing tools out there that make it easier for a lot of people to weigh in on a release. But we have a, we don't have a lot of red tape here. So we're able to get things turned around more quickly. Um, and, uh, but yeah, but the typical days working on releases determine, you know, uh, every day learning about a new thing that we need to talk about. I mean, when I look at my schedule right now, um, pretty much every day this week from I don't know, not tomorrow, but the day throughout next week, uh, re like releases almost every day announcements. Um, yeah. So, but the thing about Twitch though, it's a really casual environment here. You know, they, it's a great place to work. It's the, you know, they have catered meals here, you know, because we want to retain the best in class engineers. Uh, not that they, it's not, it's not for PR people, but, uh, we do get a benefit from the, from the engineers because, you know, we're in the Silicon Valley. So there's a lot of competition for those people. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, so there's, it's really casual, fun place to work. Also, you know, it's a lot of brands will say, uh, we'll just use gaming as an example. You know, we're for gamers, but you know, we're by gamers for gamers, but I don't necessarily always believe that's the case when it comes to people being into an, in, in, in an industry. I think a lot of times people see something that's exciting they might hire some people who know that space and then launch a product. But what's different about Twitch is they actually hire a lot of the staff straight from the community. Um, and they, the people who started the company were people who were broadcasting and watching a lot of the content. And so what that does is that when there's pain points in our community, um, oh, wait, oh, oh, this new feature, it's causing my stream to lag or what have you. We don't need to hear it because we already know it from our own staff saying, hey, why is this lagging? I'm streaming right now. You know, I mean, it definitely helps to hear it from our, our community. The other difference with our brand is that a lot of times people will ask about the competitive landscape. You know, what do you think about this brand or this one? And my answer is that I, while I like that they validate that gaming is an important part of the entertainment industry, the direction of our brand is influenced primarily by our community. We look to them to guide us. So while we're cognizant of what other brands are doing, it doesn't really have an impact because we don't want to presume to know what our community wants. Like, hey, that other brand put out this feature. We need to get that feature out right away. But if our community's not asking for it, it's just a waste of our engineers' time to prioritize that over the things that they do want. For example, last year, the three most requested things were HTML5, video upload, and blogging, which is we introduced in the form of IRL. All of those things we added last year because those were the three most requested features. And that's really sort of been the true north for the brand is just to listen to the community and work to address their problems. Because if our broadcasters are successful, then we're successful. Um, and that's always sort of been the creator first mentality of our brand. Awesome. And speaking of broadcasters, do you have any favorite streamers to work with? 
You know, that's also a loaded question. <laughs> I do. Um, but if I start picking favorites, people say, well, what about me? Um, <laughs> I mean, I think there's some, definitely some, some people I think are really compelling who are really novel. Um, one of my favorite streamers, one, uh, I have many. Uh, I love Elspeth, E-L-E-L-S-P-E-T-H, Elspeth. She's also a voice actress. She does Tristana and League of Legends and a few other games. Um, what I like about her is because she's a voice actress, when she broadcasts, she's constantly shifting her voices and doing spot-on imitations of songs, of actors, of everything. So there's this extra novelty to what she what she's doing. And she's a variety streamer. Um, uh, uh, Warwitch TV, he's phenomenal. He does sort of a Star Wars-influenced stream, but as if, but from the dark side perspective. Hmm. And so he'll do a lot of multimedia with vocal effects and smoke and different things and videos he'll drop into in the middle, like if his channel's being raided by friendly raids from another streamer, you know, he'll have all of his people in chat, you know, raid them back in, in, in chat in a real way. But uh, uh, there's also uh, General Mittens, with a Z and um, General Mittens, he's he's a talking cat, but the cat, um, it's not face rigging where somebody has puts like uses software so their face looks like a thing. It's more like a uh, a static piece of animation where like the mouth just moves up and down like a South Park and the eyes blink on occasion. And um, he's got he's more very comedic type of channel. Um, uh, Burke Black is great. He's a yes. pirate on. Um, so I really like his approach. Um, because, you know, and the thing about characters, I actually did a panel at TwitchCon about being a character on Twitch. And one of the things you learn is that it's not about being somebody you're not. It's about um, it's about being yourself, but just finding ways to add to that. Like Burke Black, he doesn't talk like a pirate. When he streams in, go, ah, matey, welcome to the pirate ship. You know, he, he talks like himself. But he plays pirate music, uses a pirate backdrop. Sometimes he'll play, you know, pirate games. So he's basically he uses pirate emotes. So he brings in all these elements to his show without sort of trying to play a character. Um, and what I'll, I've also learned is that successful characters come from giving that character a purpose. Um, General Mittens, for example, his purpose of his show is to help people who are dealing with depression and anxiety. Um, so he works a lot on that front, you know, and... Um, to help educate people or be there as a source for somebody as somebody himself has gone through these things. He's there to sort of be an outlet for that. Um, so that's what his character is. Character fights against these kind of ailments. So his character has a, a narrative to it. It's not just, Oh, Hey, it's a talking cat who comes on randomly. Um, yeah. I mean, there's just so many shows that are really entertaining for different reasons. Um, I don't know. Have you spent much time watching Twitch enough to have people you like to watch? Yeah, I mean, you 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 touched on some of my favorites already. I think I think Burke is definitely up there for the reasons you said uh, that he that he creates a show. Uh, you know, more he creates a, a theme out of what what he's doing. Uh, I'm a big fan of the the kind of funny guys. You know, they do their morning show every day, and that's kind of like you know that that's the kind of stuff I, I want to see on TV as a kid. Now they're doing it on Twitch. Um, and even you know, speaking of yeah, I, I grew up a big Attack of the Show fan. Now Kevin Pereira is doing the Attack on Twitch. It's kind of, it's it's kind of amazing how the platforms evolved and it's, you know, become a network not just to, to to watch gamers play, but to watch legitimate shows like you know these these great productions. That's the thing that is most exciting to me. 
Yeah, and what's interesting, you mentioned, you mentioned like Pereira and kind of funny games because people like Pereira and, and Greg Miller. This sort of speaks to the the gaming industry, which is that people never people who've been in and been around forever. It's like not a lot of people actually leave the gaming industry. They go they play different roles in it, go to different platforms, different brands. But it's a very uh, insulated industry where I see I, when I go to E3 this year, I guarantee I'll see you know at least a dozen people I've seen for the last five to ten years there. Um, and so it's, I always call it like a, a family reunion, you know, because I see some of those people more than I see some of my family. <laughs> yeah, it, it certainly is a big extended family. Now, you know, you have you have been doing this you know for so long in, in so many different facets of the industry. I'm sure that you've inspired and helped out a lot of different people. But who are the people that inspire you in this industry? Who people that inspire me? Um, that's a good question. Um, it's so weird. You know, it's the, that's, that's a good question. It's funny. I think in terms of PR, I don't really have a PR inspiration, but I do, I'm, I'm inspired though. I think a lot by our community, like the, what I really love is that the people on Twitch, it cultivates a certain kind of personality. You know, we've done a lot of announcements over the years about how much money is raised for charity on our platform. And that speaks to a, to the community in several ways. It means the people doing these charity events are gamers. They have to be. And then the people giving money have to be gamers because they're watching those charities. And so it really speaks to sort of the the social conscious nature of the Twitch community. And so there's a lot of streamers I really, you know, who are doing charity things. I just saw that, that two, two great streamers, uh, Continue, that's like K-I-N-T-I-N-U-E, Continue. Um, she, she, she just did a good charity stream. And a lot of them were down for St. Jude. Um, Sinfully Riddling, I love her. She does a great, she raised like thousands for charity. Um, that, that, you know, that stuff really, you know, inspires me. I mean, it makes me feel that I'm at the right place. I mean, and I should, I should, I should share this, which is that when I left my agency job of 14 years, um, I had a choice. You know, I didn't have to leave. I, but I saw where Twitch was going, but I also saw that the people who were running the company were passionate about it. And I said to myself, you know, if I ever go in-house, I want to work – I said I said, I want to work at a company for the rest of my career, and but I want to work with – so when you make that decision, you want to make sure that the people you're working with or the product you're promoting is something you can take pride in, you know, and because when you're in an agency, who knows what's going to get thrown on your desk to promote. And so that's what drew me to Twitch was that the people who worked there were really passionate about it. And a lot of the streamers were also equally passionate. And if you ever go out to like a PAX event and hang out at the Twitch booth or TwitchCon, it's a, such a unique community. Like the Twitch community is a distinct community in the sense that when you go to Comic-Con, sure, people all have a common interest. They're all into pop culture. But there's not a sense of we're family. People don't walk around each row looking at everybody else saying, hey, how's it going? How's it going? It's not like we're there. We're all in the same team. Whereas when you go to TwitchCon, it doesn't matter what line you're waiting in, you know, to get food or to get into a, a panel. Everybody's talking with each other and happy to talk to each other. You know, it's, uh, oh, who do you like to watch or what do you do? You know, and it's such this really weird thing. I, I also equate it almost to like Grateful Dead where when people go to one dead show, then they follow them all over the, the country. I talk to people who will go to one PAX event and they go, oh, I can't miss another PAX. And I constantly see them all around. Um, 
But what gives me makes me feel really good is that at this most recent PAX event, I was saying, you know, we had a lot of people there, and I knew they were at the show, but I wasn't seeing as, you know, as packed as our booth was, there was a lot of regular faces I wasn't seeing. I'm like, I go, where is, you know, how come I'm not seeing these people? But then what I started think, realizing is that because that so many publishers and developers uh, want to, to cater to the Twitch streaming community, that they now have them all streaming from their booths. And so that made me feel really good to know that these people are no longer just coming to this event to hang out. They're, they've, they actually understand they bring value to the industry and that they're taking advantage of that, you know, and I love to, I love the fact that, oh, they're not here. Oh, because they're working that booth or that one. I'm like, that's so cool that, you know, that they've got to a point where they actually have value. And we actually have done research. We have actual data that we've publicized, which shows that, you know, Twitch is influencing purchasing decisions. People will watch people play a game. We have data that shows they went and bought it right afterward. So we know they have value. They know they have, you know, now great to see that the industry's recognizing that more and more. Absolutely. Well said. And uh, yeah, that, that really does it for the bulk of my questions. Is there anything you want to shout out? Is there anything coming up on Twitch that you think uh, people should look out for? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things about Twitch that I think it's one of those things that some people get it, you know, and some people don't. And you, in the media, you might get it more because you get all my press releases. <laughs> but I think one of the things that you know, we, we still get people to talk to talk about Twitch as the gaming site. And what people don't seem to realize is that, you know, not only are we beyond gaming, we've been beyond gaming for several years now. And everything we've done, though, has surfaced from our gaming community. But we've definitely left that behind as our overall focus. I mean, it's, oh, gaming will always be our core focus. But there's so much more you can do on Twitch now. I mean, two years ago, we launched Twitch Creative, which celebrates the art of how to create something, whether it's painting a picture, composing a song, or cooking a meal. That came about when our gamers were doing game-related fan art and cosplay. So we created just a small channel category called Creative, and we saw that that channel was growing very fast and the people using it were very passionate, that that's what inspired us to give it its own landing page. Next, we introduced uh, Social Eating, which is the art of eating on stream with friends. And that came about from our South Korean streamers, which is that in South Korea, social eating is actually a phenomenon that's been around for about half a decade. So it's actually part of their culture over there, this idea of eating live on video with right. others. And so they wanted to start integrating that into their streams. And because we never just release a new category to one part of the world, we, we launched that globally. And it actually benefited a lot of our other base as well, because a lot of our streamers like to take snacks or have meals but they always, you know, they were forced to disconnect from their community to do that. And now if they choose to, to stay connected, they have that option. Um, we also noticed that even with creative, our chefs could show how to cook a meal, but they didn't, couldn't enjoy the meal with viewers. Now with social eating, they could. Um, and we also launched it with a lot of tools and play, rules in place. So, you know, people can't, you can't do eating contests or anything else that's harmful to your health. Um, after that, we introduced IRL. IRL, which in real life, um, is our vlogging uh, category. And that came about from a survey we did with our partnered streamers. Um, out of our 2.2 million broadcasters each month, 17,000 are part of our partner program. And so we did a survey with our partners, and they're the ones who are able to monetize. Um, obviously, we announced the program, so now they're no longer the only ones who can monetize. Um, but that's that's another 
another tangent. Mm-hmm. So before I get off on that, so we did a survey with our partners about would they like us to do more non-gaming content? And the majority of them actually said yes. So we said, well, if that's the case, what kind of content would you like us to expand into? And the majority of them said vlogging. And that's what led to IRL being introduced. Um, and then more recently, we we and then uh, we allowed, announced Twitch Presents, which is a channel on Twitch dedicated to programmatic TV viewing. And that's where we would show marathons on. Um, most recently, we did the Power Rangers marathon on that channel. Um, we've done a few other marathons on uh, other individual channels, like we did Cosmos Marathon to celebrate Science Week. Um, and those, this idea of programmatic TV came about when we launched Twitch Creative with the with a Bob Ross marathon. And Bob Ross was a famous TV painter in the 80s who was also sort of a, sort of reflected what the Twitch Creative experience was about, showing how to paint a picture while talking to the audience as if they were in the room with them. And so that's when we learned that our audience really likes intergra- interactive t- television programming. Um, and that's and after that, we did Julia Child. We did Pokemon. Um, we've done two. Twice we've done uh, Amazon pilot marathons um, Amaz- because they do their pilot shows for Amazon video, and we've uh, aired those to, to positive response. Um, and now we're getting ready to um, our we have a team here. We have a studio. We have a studio here. We call Twitch Studios, and they're getting uh, they're expanding into more content for the platform. But like all things we do on Twitch, the content that they're creating actually revolves around our community. So it's what are cool things our community is doing that we can highlight, or how can we bring our community into this stream, into this broadcast? Um, so that's kind of an exciting thing for us. Um, and I think the other thing that um, – so Beyond Gaming is something that I feel doesn't necessarily get the recognition it should because still people go, oh, I'd love to stream, but I'm not good at games or, you right. know, or play games. But it's like, well, can you crochet? You know, are you a DJ? You know, there's so many ways they can do stuff. Or, hey, are you a good talker? You can just talk, go on IRL, talk to many people. You know, you don't have to play anything. Basically, anything you almost anything you do elsewhere you can now do on Twitch. Um, as long as you know you adhere to our community guidelines in terms of service, um, which aren't that hard to adhere to, but still some people <laughs> like to push the envelope. And of course. There you go. I mean, that's the other thing that I think we Twitch doesn't get enough credit for is our moderation, which is we're solving for problems that the Internet has wrangled, has dealt with for many years, and I think we've actually are at the forefront of, a best-in-class solution for moderation. And what I mean by that is that the popular refrain on Internet is don't read the comments. But what if those comments could be better moderated, therefore you could read them? And that's really what we've introduced with our three-pronged approach to moderation. I mean, first, we have um, our most recent tool, which is AutoMod, which lets you set the degree of moderation you want to use. And it's, it's moderate your chat. And it uses machine-based learning, so it's not just saying, oh, there's a bad word or there's a link. It goes way beyond that. If you use two emotes together that signify something that's uh, offensive, it can block those as well. And you set the degree of how strict you want your chat to be. So our first level of defense is we provide these tools. You know, you can ban words, links, individuals, and, and do this very uh, deep level of moderation automated. The next level is you can actually assign moderators to chat. So if you want somebody to police your chat, you can have them have these moderators look into it. 
And then the third level is we have a 24-7 support team and a report button on every channel. So when people are doing things against our terms of service, if they hit those buttons, you know, we jump right on it. So when you look at those three levels, that's more robust than what anybody else is doing um, collectively. But people tend to talk about when we announced AutoMod, people said, oh, wait, Twitch is doing this great new type of moderation. We got a lot of coverage for it. But they talked about in terms of it's great for us, but they didn't really talk about what it means in broader social media about how what Twitch represents when you look at the broader space of moderation. Um, you know, nobody said, oh, look at, you know, the Internet is wrestling these problems for years. Nobody's moving the needle. I mean, when we did, we actually tested our auto mod out during when we had the Democratic and the Republican National Conventions on our platform. Yeah. And when we tested those out, people were surprised at how civil the chat was. And at the same time, one of the other rival platforms, they actually had to turn their comment section off because it was so toxic on the first day, probably within the first couple hours. Wow. That is why the White House invited us to actually stream from their the White House because they knew that we could actually moderate the stream in a way that wouldn't uh, bring down the White House. Um, the um, And I mean, obviously, the, the things we offer, you know, they're up to our users to decide, you know. So there might be big esports events where – they decide they don't want to use our moderation tools or maybe, you know, we let our community decide what kind of, we let our broadcasters decide what kind of community they want to cultivate and we give them the tools to decide that. So if there's toxic chat, you know, a lot of it might come down to just the broadcaster, how they want to moderate it. But we definitely have tools in place that can definitely mitigate a lot of abusive behavior in chat. Awesome. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. Guys, if you somehow haven't checked out Twitch, uh, which I find hard to believe, but if you haven't, definitely hit, definitely hit them up. Uh, there's an amazing range of content there. Uh, I, Chase, I really appreciate you telling your story. This has been super fun. And once again, uh, this has been People Playing Games. I'm your host, Mike Andronico. You can follow us on Twitter at PPG Podcast. You can find us on SoundCloud and iTunes, pretty much everywhere podcasts are now i think so i think we're everywhere i hope so uh twitch well yeah i was gonna say i hopefully eventually we'll be live Uh, i'm trying to i want to work out some tech technical kinks and make sure things look and sound good uh and i think we're gonna eventually experiment with doing some live shows uh which will which will certainly be on twitch well i also want to throw a shout out to you as well um not just to kiss ass to the host but also you've been a very big proponent of covering twitch over the years and, you know, and, and you always are very um, good about how you approach it. Um, you know, you, you do your research and you, you put up a lot of very deep articles about each offering. So I definitely appreciate that. And uh, cause a, lot you, of media, a lot of media don't really still it's because a lot of media don't use Twitch or so they don't necessarily always understand it, even though they might cover us. They might watch. Oh, hey, there's an E3 press conference. I'll watch that. Therefore, I know what Twitch is or, oh, I saw a giant esports event on our homepage. But that's really not what it is. It's much more intimate than that. It's much, much different from that. And um, not everybody gets that nuance who doesn't spend time on it. So thank you. Awesome. I, I really appreciate that. And that's a big reason why I do it. Uh, you know, I think a lot of media assumes that who don't watch Twitch assumes it might be a place where people are just getting paid off to stream games and say nice things about them. And and I don't think people realize the amount of just fascinating things and shows and, and communities happening. So 
I, I definitely try to highlight that whenever I can. Cool. All right. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you guys at home for tuning in. Thank you, Chase, once again for hanging out with me. And please uh, stay tuned for the next episode of People Playing Games. Time to wake up your viewers. I'm leaving. Ha, 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 ha.